Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Well, hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is a Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we're welcoming Anjali and Jetty to read from her new books, Southbound, or she's reading from The Parted Earth, but we'll be in conversation afterwards to talk about her new books, The Parted Earth and Southbound. But before I introduce her, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers it's currently open, actually, for uh, in-store browsing um, with even greater capacity at this time. So please come by. We're still um, practicing social distance and uh, CDC regulations. So please bring your masks and stay away from other people in the store as much as you can, but come on by. We would love to have you. We're also offering curbside pickup and online ordering on our websites, www.skylightbooks.com. So if you're still nervous about coming in during the pan, during the I don't know, the tail end of the pandemic at this point, you can still order online. Anjali Njeti is an award-winning essayist, journalist, and author of the debut novel, The Parted Earth. Her work has appeared in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Al Jazeera, Boston Globe, Washington Post, and other venues. She teaches creative writing in the MFA program at Reinhardt University and lives with her family near Atlanta. Anjali, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much, Lance. It's such a great honor to be here and wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to meet you too. We're both, we were talking before how um, I just left Tallahassee here in Atlanta. So we're, we, the, the, the Georgia vibe, we get it, right? That's right. The deep South. <laughs> the deep South. We, we both uh, survived it, right? As two people of color in there. It's not easy. It's not easy, listener. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Anjali, you have you have a reading for us today. I do, Lance. Um, so I'm going to read an excerpt from my debut novel, *The Parted Earth*. Um, what I've chosen to read uh, is from part of the a chapter in the middle of the book. Um, the novel centers around a character named Sean Johnson, who is 41 years old. Um, but there's one scene in the book where she's actually 10 years old. Um, and it takes place with her father, who um, they're kind of estranged. Um, and it takes place in uh, Agra in India. Uh, and they are on a trip to the Taj Mahal. Her mother's skin was a creamy white, like almost everyone's in Seattle. 
Sean had to claim or be claimed by her mother to prove their shared genes. Complete strangers would ask Sean, oh, are you adopted? They asked her mother, is she your stepdaughter? Here in India, Sean could see herself in her other parent, could match her skin to the skin of so many others around her. For the first time, she looked like everyone else, even though every Indian seemed to know she was an American. Sean and her father joined the crowd and followed along the path. With each step, the dome sprouted higher into the bright, cloudless sky. Its girth widened. When they finally reached the platform, they began a steep ascent. On the terrace, her father pivoted her body, directed her gaze along the banks of a shallow river. See there? It's called Agra Fort. In the distance, red cylindrical towers kissed low-lying clouds, walls like decorative curtains strung them together. That's the palace where Emperor Shah Jahan ruled India, he said. When Mumtaz died, he built the Taj Mahal here so he could watch over her from Agra Fort. When he died, they entombed him here with her. He paused. Isn't that a lovely thought? He never wanted to be apart from his wife. The truth of his statement stung. The emperor had never wanted to be away from the queen, but Sean's own father had gone as far away from her, as her and her mother as he could. I never knew my father, he said, his gaze locked on hers. Did I ever tell you that? The words fell out of his mouth, landed with a thud between them. His father, Sean's grandfather. She knew this, though how she came to know it escaped her. She always seemed to know about this absence in her father's life, much the same way she always knew of her own father's absence in hers. I have no idea what he even looks like, he continued. I think about him every day, though. Her father had seemed oblivious to the fact that they shared this kind of sadness of missing fathers. She wanted to shake him in that moment. His decision to move to India without her had been a selfish one. He still did not see it as such. Five years in his relocation, fully unaware of how his absence continued to hurt her, how it made her feel so lonely. For her eighth birthday, he had mailed her a globe, the earth parted by latitudes and longitudes, oceans and continents. She had measured with her hands the distance between Seattle and India. Nine hands. The sun never shone on them at the same time. He had moved so far away from her, he might as well have moved to the moon. When he lifted his face, his gaze traced the horizon, settled back on Agra Fort. Nothing makes me happier than having you here with me now, he said. No one has ever meant more to me than you. She smiled, her first of the day. If these rare moments were all they could ever have together, maybe it would be enough. Wow, that was so, I just, I felt so like in the story there. That was fantastic. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you for that reading. How are, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. You know, 
Lance, it's, I feel like things are a little overwhelming. It's, yeah. it's not just the books, right? I mean, I've got two books coming out in 18 days. Um, wow. I have family living in India where the COVID crisis is monstrous right now. Um, so um, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. I'm thankful for the good. I'm thankful to be vaccinated. Yes. Um, I, I'm thankful. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't, uh, you know, state that enough. I mean, it's been a year. I'm really hoping that people in the rest of the world get the vaccines that they need that mm. so that they can feel what I'm feeling right now, which yeah. is finally safe, right? With yeah. still lots of precautions. Exactly. Um, but finally a place of being safe. Unfortunately, that's just not how it is in a lot of countries, particularly in the global south. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really hoping that um, you know uh, we're we're able to all get to the same place with this pandemic, um, and Hopefully, that like, we see each other as like we see as a nation our mm -hmm. use of our need to like help our fellow brothers and sisters across the world. Yes. Like it's a in this scenario too, where not to talk too much about the politics of all, but yeah, to talk about the politics of it all. Mm -hmm. How could we not really? How could we not? The US needs to figure out a way to help everyone, which is something they can do. And mm -hmm. they're choosing not to, but like there are so many people who can benefit from it's something that I that interested me from the beginning of the pandemic is the fact that. There's no borders in a pandemic. There's no borders. There really isn't. There really, really. Isn't. And truthfully, there really are no borders anyway. There I really mean, you know, but, you know, I mean, so much of this novel, right, that I wrote is about a new border that yeah. comes uh, to divide two brand new nations. And mm -hmm. I think about that a lot when even just today, I mean, mm -hmm. borders are fictional. They're yeah. fake. They, they mm -hmm. really, uh, they're just political instruments of, of of oppressors and colonizers really and i and you know and you're absolutely right a global pandemic simply shines a light on that fact more than usual that you know a virus crosses everything right exactly a virus doesn't say oh this is um this is a new country oh we need our papers we need our passport before we can enter no it doesn't care we're and I am both, I'm both heartened and saddened by the fact of like, one, I think it's more visible, more people are realizing it, but two, it's also like so sad that we have these borders and we think of ourselves as separate from other people when like, we're not, we're not, we're all human beings living on this giant rock who, and that, that are connected we're connected by that we're all on this one one world i feel like i'm on a psa for like a earth day special but it is it's it's one yeah world. It's, it's one, one world. world and we are our nationality is something decided by luck and chance yeah. we've not you know we aren't born somewhere uh you know because we deserve one country more than another i mean it's yeah. just literally luck and chance our birth so it's interesting to me that 
it's such an issue in our lives, right? What nation we belong to when it's, it's the one thing that none of us control where, where we end up being born. Um, you know, and I've been thinking about that a lot too with the virus, but also with what's happening at the border again and, and children, you know, unaccompanied children being put in detention who are here to go to other family members and, you know, just just the, the the ways that we use borders to cause other people to suffer, essentially. Uh, it's children, just heartbreaking. Children, children who don't even like, children who are the most innocent out of all of us. Like children who, like we're all, we all, as you said before, don't have a choice on where we're born. We're just, it's, it's, no one does. Every, it's mm-hmm. luck, it's, it's chance, it's whatever you want to call it. But children are the most like, they just came here. They just mm-hmm. came here. They haven't been weathered by the world. And it's just like, why are we like every day I'm in my car and I'm just like, how am I not driving to the border right now? And just like tearing this all down. But like, you know, it's, um, if, if I think if I was the other day, I was thinking this, if, if groups and large groups of people decide to go down to the border right now and say, we're tearing this down, I'd be in my car. I would be down there like, with them with my hands tearing it down because there's no point in this there's no point in especially us as a country the u.s having mm-hmm. all of the resources that we have to not to have this question but oh i could talk about i mean borders borders are basically nothing more than a tool for disenfranchisement yeah. that's that's all it is a tool to reduce people's humanity to delete their rights mm-hmm. as a, as a human being i mean that's all that they're used for yeah. and yet they they uh, they take up so much of our lives you know yeah. i was just talking to some friends uh you know about the us census and how it's going to be used to redistrict uh you know uh our whole country basically yeah. right and and we are all in Georgia, um, you know, one of the things we are thinking about as organizers is how are the lines going to be redrawn? Those of us who are going to be in one district might be in another district. And But when you step back and really think about how much power these lines have and what they take away from people, mm-hmm. um, it affects our everyday lives because depending on which district you fall into, you know, that's going to determine whether or not someone really advocates for your rights as a human being or whether somebody just, you know, sells your rights to the to the corporation bidding for it or to to uh, to uh, whoever. Um, and um, it's 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 really heartbreaking um, about uh, when you think about it, how much our lives depend on these borders, these borders that really just are meant to make us smaller in the world and less powerful in the world and it's it's even like especially when you're talking about the rezoning the redistrict mm-hmm. districting i don't know the word the yeah redistricting yeah districting i said it right yes um but like you think about like my mind immediately goes and i, I don't know if it's because of like history it, it is because of history but also like being black in america mm-hmm. and, and being othered in america the redlining is the first thing that comes to my mind yes and like even the idea of like gentrification being the new redlining and people are in just a, a new term for the same old 
thing and like how scary that is in for Sony in Georgia we're like Georgia we're just talking about we're Georgia's been in the news in the past year yes. for so many reasons <laughs> oh, yes. the the voter fraud that happens in Georgia the mm-hmm. lack of trust in the government because they deserve the lack of trust right now but also how much work that like people like and we she's been everywhere Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. but also organizers that that have been working together to like get some movement there in the right direction and like also that the 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 I'll say white celebration of like oh Georgia went blue Georgia did this for us yeah. yay Georgia's finally one of us how quickly that went away that idea of that went away when because Georgia still needs the countries, the people who are organizing in Georgia needs the country support. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, after the 2020 election, I want to say abandoned them in a way. Right. And you're so right. And not only that, but um, we had a lot, a lot of white folks praising our Secretary of State. Um, for not cheating the election. And then our Georgia Republicans here just took away significant means for us to vote in future elections by passing into law SB 202, which reduces our opportunities to vote. So we've just experienced a significant backlash for you know, sending our electoral votes to Biden and for flipping to U.S. Senate seats. But we are in, we are back in dire straits again right now. I mean, and and you're absolutely right. It does feel as if a significant amount of the country has sort of, you know, moved on, right? Yeah. They think that, you know, they think that because Biden is in office that these problems have gone away. And we still don't have uh, a Voting Rights Act, a federal Voting Rights Act to restore the rights of voters in these states. And there are several in the US which are in the process of erecting significant barriers to keep their voters from voting in a in, a, in the next election. And I guess maybe people will wake up again in 2022 when they realize what dire straits we're in, but it'll be too late. Yeah. Um, because it's a problem that we need to be talking about all the time right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, I just, I just, uh, it's so, it's so apparent that what the country's priorities are is not correct. I mean, even from like mm-hmm. the fact that like, that we put so much weight on the 2020 election and even like the Senate uh, runoffs afterwards. And I was there phone banking in Georgia to make sure that people were like voting. And it just, well, like, thank you. Thank you, Lance. It was, it was too, and I don't even want it. And I appreciate the thanks, but I don't even want it because I'm just like, we all should have been doing it. Where I was like telling all my friends, I was like, if you want a phone bank, here's all the information. Because like, it just, it was so, it was important for this because any increment of change is important, but we also need to realize what that change represents. Like, I feel like people were like, Trump's out of office, the evil's gone. No, Trump just mm-hmm. made that evil, he just gave a face of the evil, I guess, or like made the evil, mm-hmm. but it's still there. It's still there. It's there when I'm watching, and I probably shouldn't get too into this, but like when we're watching the Biden administration walk through the offices on their Twitter videos, it's still, but not like, helping these children who are at the borders being just mm-hmm. like 
terror. It's it's still there. Like we're not. It's not over, and we need to like. Right. White supremacy did not disappear the day that Biden was inaugurated. Right. Our entire nation was founded on it, and was founded on racialized violence and genocide and slavery. So it's not as if having Democrats in office solves that problem. It, it, it doesn't. Perhaps it gives us a little bit of a, a footstool to, to then do the deeper, more necessary work than what elections can achieve. Um, but but yeah, I mean, we are still, I'm, I'm so thankful Biden won. I'm so thankful we flipped the Senate. We are in dire straits. I mean, we just had that capital insurrection yeah. a couple of months ago for crying out loud. So um, we, we've got some serious uh, issues. We have mass shootings left and right and other shootings, not just mass shootings, just mm-hmm. gun violence in general. Um, Actually, yeah, and, we had the biggest Black Lives Matter protests the country has ever seen. Mm-hmm. And still last week, a black woman was shot or two weeks ago, sorry. And like the George, yeah. even with that George Floyd um, hearing that just happened, it just, it's like, well, I'm still waiting for the, um, the, what's the prosecution? No, the prosecution is what happened. The, the judge's ruling to see what happens, but still like, it's not enough. We need to see, I don't even know if a reform in the police. I mean, I, I don't believe in the reform in the police department myself. Person. Yeah, I, I, how could we? We've had we've had a hundred years of reform, so I'm not really sure. It doesn't doesn't seem as if reform is working. I'm not sure why not everyone can come to that conclusion yet. But when you've had a hundred years of of something not working, I think that's a I think that's a, a really good sign to maybe think about something else, like uh, like taking away the money and reducing the police force, and, I, um, and pouring it into other programs. The military. Think about like all the work we could do if the military wasn't just this like militaristic force, but like maybe like a peace corps type force or like a un uh, a, a force that's helping the world instead of like going out there and. I don't want to say terrorizing the other countries, but um, I'm not not saying it. You know what I mean, though? Like, we yeah. have so much money and so much influence. How are we not, how is the world not better off from it? You know what I mean? It's just, but we could talk about this for days. I feel like we're having a fantastic conversation, but I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your book. And I mean, like, I feel like all this is intertwined. It is, yeah. It is. But um, before before we talk about it, I also one thing I love to ask um, authors and guests on the podcast: Is there anything you're reading or watching right now that's giving you peace in this crazy time? Which, like, even a small amount of peace or a big amount of peace, any any kind of peace. Is there anything that's uh, giving you that right now? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Um, so. What am I reading? Um, I recently finished Disha Filial's um, The Secret Life of Church Ladies, which I absolutely, absolutely love. Um, I am, I just started, oh my gosh, what is the name of this show that, um, hang on, okay. So I just started watching, oh my gosh, yesterday um, with my husband, what we do in the shadows. Great job. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. I oh my gosh. It is like oh, the most relaxing tonic mm-hmm. 
I've en- encountered in the in the during the pandemic. It is just so. I mean, I'm just sitting there and it's not complicated, but it's really funny, but it's funny in like the sweetest way, right? Like just the most sincere and authentic way. So for people who don't know, it's basically a mockumentary about vampires living on Staten Island and they're just living their lives and trying to do their own thing. And um, and we're in season one and it's great. No, I haven't. Which is better, the movie or the series? I want. I just love the movie because it's, it's, it feels it's the beginning, but it actually they intertwine in a lot of ways too. They come together, okay, in really cool ways. But I would say, get to watch the movie because it's it it's, takes place in New Zealand. Yeah, it's Taika Waititi. Okay, he's in it, and it's like the com- the comedians in it are just like A plus comedians, and like it's just you'll watch the movie and be like. And it, I feel like it gives even more layer to the show in a way. Where okay. Like, I see where these jokes come from. But, like, it's the show. And the second season, too, I think it just even gets better. It gets so much better. And even it's I love the first season. And the second season just, like, heightens it all, too. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, I just love, like, some of the deadpan dry humor. It's just, it's so funny the way it's delivered. Yeah. And, um... I'm not really, I wasn't really familiar with any of those actors, mm-hmm. so I didn't know what to expect, but I will definitely watch the movie. We were debating yesterday actually about whether to watch the movie or watch the series, and I was just like, let's just see one short episode and see what it's like. Um, and then so that's wonderful for me, and, and yeah. I've just been, in general, I feel like I've just been watching really good television i mean i I just like the various series that i've seen it's just i feel like you know what it's done it's really just transported me out of my head Mm -hmm. i feel like really good tv is like it's making me not think about the pandemic and still not being able to see people Mm -hmm. that i love and and still having a kid who won't be vaccinated for a while. It's just really taken me out of that. And I'm so grateful for it. I mean, we've just really had some high quality television the past few years. And it's, it's, you know, sometimes uh, I love reading it's so much, but sometimes a book is just almost too much for me to have to concentrate on. And I just need to have something like that's just playing and doing all the work for me. So. Well, as a person who loves television, I feel like I'm glad that people are, slowing down in their lives enough to like catch up on some of these shows that have just mm-hmm. and I feel like there's a lot of stuff that people are noticing now that are just like that should have been noticed years ago but I'm just but they're now getting the attention they deserve and yes like, I just myself rewatched, but I watched it during the pandemic for the first time the show glow oh my gosh yes what a show what a show it just I don't even think people know some one of the most diverse characters are some of the most diverse characters in the sh- television I think I've seen in this show and like a show with the strong body of women uh just what a show but this isn't about me this isn't about me but no I just I'm glad that you found that in what we do in the shadows I'm, and um the secret life of church ladies that's fantastic um secret life of church ladies which is on sale at skylight so if you guys yes pick it up if you haven't already definitely pick it up and it's a 
it's it's another one of those reads where it's just like I can just I you sink so easily into each story. Like just takes one sentence, and you're already in that character's mindset and in the setting. And it's just I, I just. I just love books like that. Like that's really the kind of story I gravitate to. Don't give me something so complicated. I have yeah. to do, I have to figure something out and work really hard from the first sentence. No, I want to be right in the character's head at the beginning. And that's, and that's what she does. Oh, and that's beautiful. And I think that's something that is also great for this time. Like get me, get me out of this head and get me into another character's head. A hundred percent. So I just, one, I'm so impressed by you because you put out within like less than what eight weeks from each other, two separate books. Less than three weeks, three actually. Weeks. Yes, Southbound came out on April fifteenth, and then The Parted Earth is out on May fourth. So yes, which is far from the recording that we're recording today. It's tomorrow, which is just so. Yes. When you guys are listening to this. It'll already be out and you'll you can run to the we'll we'll have it on display at skylight and like just wow so i don't don't even the words i don't even have to say for that how does that feel to have your two works out within a month of each other and also during the pan during still during the yeah it's still a pandemic but like during this time too but like how does that feel Well, it was a long journey for me to find homes for these books. Um, Southbound, uh, let's see, The Parted Earth is actually the sixth book that I wrote, and Southbound is the seventh book that I wrote, and they are the first two that I sold. So I had written several books that didn't get anywhere, Mm -hmm. Um, and um, I submitted one of seven books for 11 years before I got my first book contract. So... Mm -hmm. Um, so it took me a really long time. So I feel really lucky and thankful that I got even one book contract for one of my books. Um, and of course, doubly lucky for the second one, because I just didn't really think it was going to happen for me. Uh, you know, I was kind of winding it down and really giving up. Um, and I had tried, you know, for the parted earth, I had tried for almost three and a half years to get an an agent and I actually never did. I was just lucky that hub city press in Spartanburg, South Carolina was had an open submission period and you didn't have to have an agent for it. So I was just very, very lucky and UGA press the same thing. They didn't require me to have an agent. So I was able to submit both books unagented. Um, you know, it's interesting because I was initially really um, sad and a little depressed a few months ago when I realized that the pandemic was not going to be totally over and done with but before my books came out and that I would again be doing um, online events and um, and not really get to meet a whole lot of readers in person. But you know, the flip side of that is um, I feel like I'm getting to see more people online that I would never get to get to see because, the you know, I, I, it's not like I'm going to run out to California and Illinois and Texas. And so I actually get to do more things um, with them being online. And, um, and it also allows me to keep 
writing at home, working on my next book and staying involved in my kids' lives and doing, keeping up with teaching. And so there is a, a great amount of flexibility that comes from having the books come out uh, and doing most of my events online. And I'm guessing that this isn't going to completely go away when we're not in the pandemic. I mean, how hard is it for an author to get on a two hour flight to go somewhere to show up at a bookstore when maybe five people come? Yeah. I mean, that's got to be super hard. I've never had to do it because obviously I don't know anything different than doing an online book launch, but I mean, to me, I think, okay, well, if I do a, a Zoom and only seven people show up, that's still a great evening to me, right? I mean, that's fine. Five people, seven people. I haven't left my house. So um, so I'm happy to talk to a really small group of people online. If anything, that makes the event better because it's, you know, makes room for a more intimate conversation with me um, and readers and other writers. So, um, so I'm now starting to see actually the benefits of it. Um, but I think, and you would know this Lance is a bookseller. I mean, the thing that makes me saddest about it is the fact that, you know, booksellers are probably going to be hurt. I imagine that these online events don't sell as many books. And so in that respect, it makes me sad because I want independent bookstores to thrive. And I want, you know, I, I want people to keep buying books. And, um, and so, I mean, for me as an author, it's okay that it's working out like this, but I do worry about, I do worry about keeping all of our favorite indie bookstores in business. And I know that there's been a lot of indie bookstores throughout the year that have like had to close or had to change their models or had to shut down for a little bit just to like get it, get, I mean, things we at Skylight had to shut down for a week or two because uh, staff members had COVID and there's been like those complications in there too. But there's one thing I think I have noticed is that communities have realized how important indie bookstores are and have found some way to like, help their indie bookstores and with uh, honestly i've seen and probably not as much as if it's been in stores but like i've seen people come out to buy the books that they've seen want to go to event for or the books that they've seen on uh abc podcast and they've they've come out and honestly too bookstores supporting other bookstores um has been something that i think i've that has happened because we are all connected online now. We're all being, we're all able to be like, hey, bookstore in this city, we notice you, we love you. What can we do to help you and promote you? I, it's been, it's been on a previous episode, I had a friend of mine who opened a bookstore in Iowa during the pandemic. And oh, wow. I heard about it. it is, it's just, it's been, it's great to like have this bookstore community out here. So I think. It, it, it's been a year it's been a mm -hmm. crazy year but it's also shown how like important community is and I think your book your books talk about that too in a great way how important community is and how important how necessary it is and like one thing that did get me in uh in your books is the idea of like being because and it's something that I started reading during the pandemic and learning a lot about is being not white in the deep south and looking mm -hmm. for community there and like 
your book reminds me a lot of your books remind me a lot of like reading i read transcendent kingdom last year oh love 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 that book oh what a great book what a great 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 book but like did and did you while reading that find like a connection in there with your own stories I did. You know, I love finding, um, I love finding books um, by Southern authors, by non-white Southern authors. Um, I don't feel like there are enough of them. And of course, we've been in the South since the beginning, uh, you know, since soon after the country was formed, right? Um, and, um, and of course, indigenous folks have been here thousands of years longer than that. Um, so, but, but I think, um, and and I, I identify as Southern. Um, I didn't move to the South until I was 10, but I came of age in Southeastern Tennessee and went away after high school for a little bit, but then came back and I've now lived in the South Georgia again for 14 years. So, Um, I I think what happens is that there's such a stereotype of what a Southerner looks like, of who a Southerner is, Mm -hmm. that we we just kind of assume it's always going to be white people, and it's going to be maybe white rednecks, white Republicans, white evangelical Christians, Mm -hmm. white uh, Appalachian folks, white farmers. And that stereotype has really sort of controlled the narrative to such a degree Mm -hmm. that I don't feel like um, publishing has really picked up on the immense uh, racial diversity down here. Um, And as a result, I feel like the stories that are being published don't necessarily reflect the population here. I mean, look, Georgia is something like the 10th most racially diverse state in the country. And most people probably had no idea of that. Uh, And we are, we have huge numbers of not only black folks, but we have uh, African folks, uh, immigrants, African immigrants. We have Latinx folks, uh, a very quickly growing Asian American population. Um, We have Arab Americans. I mean, we are a very, very diverse state, as are other states in the South. Um, And so I feel like non-white writers often have to sort of climb over this extra barrier in that People in the industry don't necessarily um, realize that we exist um, and that we can actually tell stories of our communities that are not what have been told before. They're not expected because we're so shoehorned into these ideas of who a Southerner is. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping, I, I'm really excited about the literature that's coming out of the South. Um, I feel like um, we're, we're getting there. We're, we're getting more books about uh, places in the South from, uh, from, from folks that, you know, may have been here for generations too. Um, uh, but I, I'm really excited about the potential we have down here. And I hope I hope we are given more opportunities to tell our stories because, you know, a Southerner looks like many different things and oftentimes uh, is a very different sort of person than what many of us have in our minds. Yeah. And I, and like, 
as you said, there's not a lot of the stories there, which have made me think that publishers would want to tell more because it's new. Mm-hmm. And people want new stories. People want stories they haven't seen before. People want um, people want something. And I've read so many of them. I've also read who's that? Uh, Saeed Jones. Uh, oh yeah, his books and his he talks about it. And like I've read, I just was reading um, Memorial, which is about. Uh, oh Grant yes. That's on my nightstand right now. And Kiese oh. Lehman, oh, yes, uh, it's, love his books. It's it's they're so good. They're so mm-hmm. they're so good. Your books. You're in this community as well, and you deserve. You all deserve like your stories told and your stories noticed. And yeah, the South isn't as a person who uh, lived there for many years and survived there from, I'm joking. Um, but like who lived there, I've seen the diverse community. I've been accepted by the diverse community and I love it. I, I love how surprising I was surprised I was. Cause I'm from originally the Northeast and going down there. I was like, this is a beautiful to see. So more people need to realize that there's a, a wide ocean of stories down there to be told from the diverse community. But I also wanted to talk about something that you do in your book that I, one of my favorite things to see is um, people talking, favorite is might be the too strong of a word, but what most interesting to see is people talking about the AIDS epidemic in the U.S. Mm -hmm. outside of the major cities like L.A., San Francisco, New York, um, because I feel like the stories have only been centralized there. But you talk about it in, especially Southbound, being in Atlanta and seeing that. Can you talk more about that? Absolutely. So um, in the early 1980s, uh, my family and I were living in a suburb of right? And then we moved down to where my father, um, he was in academic medicine before and he started in a private practice and it was basically timed almost the exact same time of the the start of the uh, epidemic when we moved down to uh, Chattanooga. And um, back then, I mean, Chattanooga is very different now, but but back then, uh, Chattanooga was the buckle of the Bible Belt, very uh, large evangelical Christian community. It was a fairly segregated city. There were not a whole lot of uh, non-Black people of color, um, certainly not many Asians. And um, and uh, my father was, you know, experiencing racism as a uh, Indian immigrant physician practicing in the Deep South, but he was also witnessing um, how people uh, were being treated who had been diagnosed with HIV and AIDS. And so, uh, and and he treated a fair number of these patients as a pulmonologist and critical care specialist. Um, And, uh, you know, and uh, while also uh, experiencing racism, so it was almost the symbiotic relationship here. Uh, His his patients uh, felt, uh, uh, you know, respected him and uh, requested him to treat them, and and he uh, was uh, honored with the opportunity to treat them, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I was 10, 11 years old uh, uh, when there was still so much mystery about about 
HIV, but also just so many lies about it, about how it was being contracted. Um, and just a lot of overblown measures were being taken that really did nothing but ostracize people and make them feel terrible. Um, so much bigotry. Um, and, um, and, 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 you know, it was a, it was a hard place to be a member of the LGBTQIA community. It was a hard place to be HIV positive or someone with uh, what was then called full-blown AIDS. Um, and uh, it was a hard place to be a person of color. Um, and these forces, you know, sort of uh, uh, inter interwove with one another. And, um, and uh, you know, there's so much, when you live in such a, a religious part of the country, there's just so much judgment and condemnation um, and shame um, and people not feeling like they could get help, people not feeling like they could tell their family members, hey, I'm sick um, because they would be kicked out of the house uh, or shamed or cut off from their loved one's lives. Um, so it was a really heartbreaking time um, for for uh, people uh, who either uh, were patients, mm -hmm. loved ones of patients, um, and um, and it was it was a really ugly ugly time in the United States. Um, and um, you know, I I've, I've been thinking a lot about the AIDS epidemic then, and about the recent. Uh, uh, amount of, of anti-Asian hate due to COVID. And there are so many similarities in some ways when people just sort of cling to these very bigoted ideas that they have about disease and and how easy it is to become to become violent. I mean, you know, Members of the gay community were were beaten and they were killed, and of course they still are today. Um, and um, and you know, members of the Asian community, due to the Trump administration's uh, uh, you know racial slurs, uh, are are also being beaten and killed. Um, you know, and and it's it's um, it's a sad thing to see this sort of hatred tied to, you know, disease, uh, mm -hmm. this continue and into different forms. Um, and, um, but I, I felt that it was important to write about and, and in that essay, which is actually called treatment, um, I, I sort of play on the word talking about treatment for disease, but also treatment of the, uh, the LGBTQIA community, treatment of uh, people who were not white, um, but also uh, I come to terms with maybe ways that uh, of how I treated others, of, of how I didn't quite speak out to the degree I should have when I saw or heard of bigotry or saw it, because certainly people were, you know, people were using uh, gay slurs uh, and people were, 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 using those sort of 
really just horrific uh, mottos, right? Like, uh, yeah. uh, hate the sin, love the, love the sinner was one of the most, I mean, it has to be one of the most violent things, right? But, mm-hmm. but back then in the 80s, it was just such a popular uh, way for uh, bigots to sort of elevate themselves and act like they were, uh, you know, p- pretend that they were moral people, that they believed in humanity, when really that was probably one of the most degrading things that um, anyone could say. Yeah. Um, uh, but but they, that's how they held themselves out as, as sort of having a, a moral compass on the area, when really they were just plain old violent bigots. Yeah, well, I think it's so funny you talk about the anti-Asian hate and the the ostracized LGBTQIA community during these times, because when I think about them too, I find the common root of it is a political leader kind of heading this in the patriotism, kind of being that disease. uh, It's funny, I'm talking, not disease, but like the, this thing plaguing America of like, it's, it's, People are fueled by, and I think too with like um, big events like 9-11, which is a horrible event, but I think a lot of the hate afterwards was directed towards a certain community in the U.S. And people were like, it just, it's, and it was fueled by the patriotism. It was fueled by this. And I think there is a sort of evil in patriotism. Like there's, in, in kind of that like mob mentality of it. Like we... And it's what we talked about earlier with the borders too. Like people are quick to be like, especially white Americans are quick to be like, this is our country. And like, you've heard that phrase, like if you hate it here, get out. Or if you, it's like, but no, this is our country too. This is, you're, you're, you are, you, you identify as Southern. I identify, my parents are, um, I'm first generation American too. And my parents are from Jamaica. And like, there is that, they are American. They did everything. They they lived here for a lifetime, a whole lifetime. I'm nearing 30. Oh God! And they were here before I am. <laughs> they were here before I moved here. And yeah, it's just it's it's insane to look at that. But also, in another kind of related thing in your books, I want to talk about too is the idea of white feminism and how you perceive that in your life, especially. I think with white feminism being kind of exposed for what it is in the past year, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I um, I just want to hear what you have to say about that, too, because I, I feel like you have amazing things to say about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was younger, right, I mean, I I was born in the early 70s. I sort of came of age in the 1980s, early 90s. And when I first discovered feminism, I only knew about it as feminism. And I was, I was like 19 years old when I really sort of became, uh, I started taking women's studies classes and I became familiar with what feminism was. And, um, I only knew it as feminism. And, you know, initially off the bat, I thought, well, you know, feminism is for everybody. And um, I didn't see the complications that race brought to it yet. Um, And I did soon after, um, as I write about in the essay, Fraught Feminism in Southbound, um, it it took me, it took an event um, that happened during my internship one summer at the National Organization for Women, when I finally realized, okay, this is different. This is 
what Audre Lorde said in practice, right? This is this is exactly what the 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 master's tools in the master's house and and you know I could I could see I had been reading bell hooks and Audre Lorde and Angela Davis um, and uh, Tony Kate Bambera and uh, so I I I read the theory mm-hmm. and then when I when I was sort of more out in the world I could see. Um, without knowing the term, I had not heard the term intersectionality yet. Mm-hmm. It would be years before I came across that term, but I could see that really the way people had viewed feminism was a white feminism, meaning it's really only your gender that we're interested in, your gender identity, and you've got to sort of hush up about how your life is affected by your other identities. Um and uh, it felt like such a betrayal initially because um, I thought, well, I can't just bring part of me to the table. Right. Um, I can't just advocate for women and femme rights. Um, and, uh, and so it was really quite a lesson for me. Um, and we, we still see this play out today um, where, you know, in, in the, in sometimes the, you know, there, there are obviously, there are very obvious instances where this plays out, but, but just in general, you, you can oftentimes see instances where issues are so divided by race um, and, and we can't find ways to unite under a gender, nor, nor should we. I mean, we should always be in community with all marginalized folks, no matter how those marginalizations are described, right? We, you know, aligning only with race, aligning only with faith, with uh, uh, ability, with um, gender or sexual identity. I mean, it, it eventually we're just going to... We, we've got to all come together to to really take down white supremacy, the patriarchy, uh, you know, capitalism. I mean, it's got it's got to be a bigger movement than that. Um, and that and that was when you know when with that that summer at now is when I finally realized that feminism had quite a quite a lot of limitations and um and it wasn't the solution that i had thought it was going to be and it's because feminism especially with what you're saying they wanted you to only bring that part your gender identity to part of it mm-hmm. that only benefits white people because at the the in worldwide the standard is white every standard mm-hmm. is white so mm-hmm. when you're saying this bring the gender identity that you mean the white gender identity, like whatever you're, whatever you can connect to the white people, that's what we wanted to see you bring. And that only, that only benefits white supremacy. That only benefits, I just, there was, there's a very, I won't even say the name of it, but there's a very popular movie out right now about like, it that deals with a lot of feminist topics, but it's all white. It's all white. There's no like, there's, barely any diversity in it and I remember that watching that being bothered by that but seeing it being praised highly and I'm just like who's praising it though and who's saying all these things about it and because I've been seeing non-white voices talk about it as much yeah still was praised highly right I mean you know traditional notions of feminism feminism require everyone 
who isn't white, isn't, um, uh, you know, uh, cis, het hetero to, to really erase the rest of themselves. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know what movie you're talking about, but I do know that in narratives in general, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, white people won't think anything of, of say, uh, having a television series where almost everybody is white or a movie where everyone is white. Mm -hmm. And, um, and not still to this day, not notice that there's no racial diversity, feeling like the story itself is so universal. What does it matter what the races of the characters are, right? Yeah. We're still sort of, we still are sort of obsessed with upholding um, white supremacy in the form of colorblind theory, right? Yeah. Where, oh, I don't see color, you know, um, which in and of itself is as an ableist concept, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what the, I feel like it's what the 1980s were, were founded on was this notion of not seeing, of not seeing color. And, um, and we still, we still see it. I mean, I, I see all kinds of spats happening on social media and right. It's always the white people defending somebody yeah. and the, the non-white people, saying look this is an issue of race and white people saying no it's not about race it's just about what happened to this person and, and yeah. not really ever seeing the lens that is race mm -hmm. with something that seems race race neutral but never there's nothing that's race neutral there's there's nothing that doesn't involve race but but yeah i mean it's we're st i'm still myself trying to unpack and understand this and and how you know, and to be very cognizant of the ways that I uphold and align myself with whiteness. I mean, it's something that we have to think about every day, or at least I have to think about it every day, all the time. And to make sure I'm really taking a look at, um, you know, where race is implicated and interrogating race and racism um, and, and making sure that I'm just not jumping the gun to conclusions about something because I'm reverting back to the the standard as you say which is which is thinking things in terms of of whiteness um but uh you know it's a it's a life it's going to be a lifelong journey for me to unpack all of that and i think that like and someone said this really well to me because i feel like a lot of people see that and they're like if it's not if i'm gonna have to take a lifetime how am i gonna benefit from this what i have to think about myself and it's like no you're not just doing it for you you're doing it for the future generations so hopefully one day and it might not i personally i don't believe i'll see it in my lifetime but there might be one day where a kid is born into this world and doesn't have to worry about race as much as we did and as much as we do now. And like, I hope for that future generation. That's why I feel like it's important for us to do this work now. It's not gonna benefit us the way that I would would love to. I'd love to wake up and not think about, uh, hope about as much as I love being black. I love being black, but think about like, a cop might pull me over for being black, or I might have a very racist white supremacist like, come after me for this or being because uh, it's it's just society is like influenced by this so no I think you're right and I think like a lot of the first steps is reading and like a book like yours I think is do you, would you agree that a book like yours could do a lot of benefit for a person who's trying to learn about white supremacy embedded in our culture 
I mean, one of the things that I would really hope is that because I have several essays in the book where I talk about specifically where I've been complicit in white supremacy, where in fact I sided with whiteness in order to elevate myself or protect myself. What I would really hope is that someone else reading the book would sort of have their light bulb moment and think, oh, I've done that too. And maybe they would be less defensive at the thought that they um, support white supremacy if they see someone else admitting it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there's nothing like blatantly like KKK racist that I do in the book. But my whole point of the book is that the quote subtle forms of racism are just as racist, right? Yeah. And they cause just as much harm as uh, wearing a white hood and burning crosses, right? That's the whole point of the book is that here I am you know, I mean, I was very vocal about racism when I was a child and a teenager. It's not even like I turned the other way. I very oftentimes did say something about racism. Yeah. But I still was not, I was still putting out a lot of harm in the world. And I was still sort of uh, upholding white supremacy. And so my hope is that people maybe let down their defenses and examine instances in their lives where like, you know, maybe they need to be more conscious of the ways that they are more quietly upholding white supremacy. And I'm hoping people have that moment with the with my book because I'm I'm very open about the times when I totally screwed up. And um and uh that's all we can do actually is just look back on our lives, see where we totally messed up and caused harm and change and pledge to do differently the next day, pledge to be a little bit more um, evolved. And, um, and I'm hoping that readers who read my book take in that lesson, like, oh, I'm going to do better. I, I, I didn't realize I was causing harm in X situation. And I think I did. And now I'm going to change. That's, you know, that's all I could ever hope for. I recently told a friend who was telling me about this situation they were in where they said the wrong thing to a black author and they were just like I made this mistake and how do I they were like so ashamed of the mistake and I'm like but the, the way you're talking about it now the way you're reflecting on it is so important you need to talk about it too because in, to quote the show Fleabag I don't know if you've seen it yes but like, to love it like, what um, amazing line I think we all can like use in our everyday lives from it is that the reason that pencils have erasers is because we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. They pencils wouldn't have erasers if we didn't. We all need to get. We all need to get. It's the ego that's feeding us that like mm -hmm. we can't talk about it. But you're right. And like, one, thank you for making a book where you are open about that because that's so important. It's it's easy to talk about how we're we're how great we are, how much work we've done, and how amazing we are. But it's hard to talk about the mistakes. But it's so it important. is. It is important. I mean, look, shame is such an uncomfortable emotion. I mean, it was really hard for me to write about things that I am really ashamed of. That was hard to do. It wasn't easy. But some good can come from shame. I mean, if we just let ourselves sit in it for a little bit and be uncomfortable and think about it, 
um, we, we can be better people because of it. We can admit our mistakes and admit that we need to do better and find ways of doing better and, and not make the same mistake again. So, I mean, the, you know, uh, it, maybe if we are give ourselves permission to reflect and, and to, to really see things that, that we're not proud of, maybe we'll be able to get on this journey a, a little faster and a little further along. And oh, what a great, I just, what a great way to like vocalize what like we all need to, as a society, talk about more. Um, Anjali, I just have one more question for you because our time is running out, which is so sad because I feel like we've just been, ha- we've just been having such a great conversation. I, I know it's been so fun, Lance. But my last thing for you is, I just, what would you like to tell our listeners is the most important thing that not even they took, they can take away from your book, but you took away from writing all of this. You know, one of the things I, I, I took away from the books, I think, is that, you know, we, we're all on a, a journey. We're mm-hmm. all evolving as people. And um, the most important thing is not to be, you know, the most uh, evolved person in the room, not to be someone who knows all of the answers, but just to sort of commit to being on this journey of becoming a better person and to do so without judgment. Don't feel like because you haven't started thinking about white supremacy until today that you can't participate in uh, in dismantling it, right? Like everybody needs to start somewhere. And in this, and, 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 and as, as long as you get on that road, that's what's important. I mean, I've changed even since writing these books, I've become, I hope a better human being. I've, I've, I hope I've looked harder at some of the actions that, um, I'm not proud of. Um, so I think what's important is just, um, be a little gentle with yourself, but don't be afraid to look at that, those places in your life when, when you should have done better. Um, as, as long as you are committed to uh, changing the world and to really uh, interrogating white supremacy, you are on the path. Just keep going and, and find a community of people that will encourage you and nurture you but also hold you accountable um and um and that's that's really all we can ask of anybody yes and that's so uh, a a wonderful way to end (laughs) this amazing podcast um no that's so if you all my listeners go out and buy this book go out and do it this is important i'm not saying the white listeners especially but like yes um (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, everyone go out and buy this book. This seems, uh, this this is such an important read. And I just thank Anjali for all of her great work here. And just in, Anjali, do you have anything last things you would like to say to the independent bookstore community? I think you've said, you said so much already about it. And like, as a bookseller, I just, everything you said was amazing. But do you have any last things you would like to say to everyone? Absolutely. I mean, I'm just so, so grateful for the independent bookseller community. I have been my entire life. Mm-hmm. I've never, I feel like we've never needed you all more than we have during this pandemic. I mean, I, it, this pandemic obviously has shed a light on so many different things. Yeah. 
but especially on the independent bookseller community. I mean, now we have the, the big the big presses are just continue to merge and merge and merge and merge. And I feel like especially independent booksellers do such a good job of highlighting books from small presses. Both of my books are from small presses. One is a university press, University of Georgia Press. Um, the Parted Earth is from Hub City Press. And I'm so grateful for indie booksellers because they go out of their ways to highlighting books from marginalized authors, books from small presses. And given the, the, the monopoly that continues to form of, um, of larger presses, um, I, I'm so grateful for the work that you do, Lance, and all independent booksellers. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be here without you. Uh, that's for sure. You know what? As a person, as to get to run this podcast, and this is something I'm saying to the listeners, especially as a person who gets to run this podcast and speaks to all kinds of writers, there isn't like small press, large press, one of the big um, presses, like all of these publishers, it doesn't just because it's a small press doesn't mean the quality is any different. I've met, I've read some of the most amazing things from any kind, from both big and small. Everyone is amazing. And all these writers, like, if even if you didn't see it on the New York Times bestseller list, doesn't mean that it's not as amazing as that book you saw in there. And just, there's a, there's so much good out there in these, in all kinds of presses. Just, I just explore, explore, go to your local, go to your local independent bookstore and tell them, Hey, what small press book do you recommend today? And yeah, that's a great idea. That's yeah. a great idea. Go, go do that. It's, it's, uh, it's, it'll be worth it. Believe me, it'll be worth it. And yes, thank you so much again for this. It's been a fantastic, fantastic episode. Thank and you. Your books are the parted earth and southbound again I want to say congrats for putting out two books within a month <laughs> thank you so much uh, it's not a small feat at all um, and this has been Anjali and Jetty and her you can buy her books at Skylight right now you can go in the store and grab it uh, we'll have a we'll have a display for Anjali out there but you can also buy it at www.skylightbooks.com and come pick it up but it'll be worth it. And uh, just, or go to your other local independent bookstores and pick it up. They just, and follow Anjali on Twitter too. She has a wonderful Twitter presence. Thank you and so much. No problem. But and, and follow Skylight everywhere too on social media. Keep, keep track of what they're doing. They're doing great things. Thank you so much. You guys all have a great rest of your day. And thank you again for all my beautiful listeners for joining us and hope to see you again soon or hear you again soon. Or you'll hear me again soon. I don't know. One of the three. <laughs> have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.